The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. Wherever you may be and however you may be listening, welcome to the Being an Engineer show with your co-host Rafael Destai and my precious guest Thomas Rinaldi. Thomas is actually the author of a book called Patented and I'm going to let uh, Thomas do an introduction of his book here, but this is right up your alley if you're someone that likes design patents and wants to know more, more about that subject. So Thomas, why don't you go ahead and take it away and explain to us uh, what your book is, what is it about, and maybe do a little introduction of yourself. Uh, thanks. So, uh, Patented, uh, my book, is 1,000 Design Patents. Um, and it sort of stems from a discovery that was a discovery for me. For some people, maybe it's kind of old hat. But um, the idea that there's a whole category of patents out there that are uh, called design patents, and they are uh, specifically geared to protecting the appearance of things. Um, they be the U.S. government began issuing them in 1842, and since 1842, they've now issued something like, uh, I think they just crossed the 900,000 mark for the number of design patents that have been issued. Um, when most people hear the word patent, I think they think of uh, utility patents, which are uh, a separate category of patents, kind of the, the predominant category. Um, there are about 10 times as many utility patents as there are design patents. And utility patents protect the way something functions. And I think that's sort of most people's understanding of what a patent is. So, you know, like the cotton gin or, you know, Edison's incandescent light bulb, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but design patents, uh, like I said, protect the way something looks. So they're uh, an incredibly valuable resource for design historians. And, um, you know, having kind of stumbled upon this suddenly, you know, for me, it was uh, the, the appeal, the, uh, the fascination was that um, here's this whole database of 900,000 patents that tell you who designed something and when, uh, you know, and normally we think of works of design, people are thinking of sort of, uh, kind of higher levels of design, like architectural design or uh, things like that. But um, to me, the incredible thing was that suddenly uh, through design patents, you could um, study everything from like staplers to lamps to radios to phones to cell phones, um, it, the same way that you would study uh, works of architectural, uh, you know, architectural history. And, you know, there's this, all, all of a sudden there's all these, uh, in what they're called inventors in patent parlance, but designers really, um, whose uh, industrial designers mainly, whose names have been totally forgotten, um, but who are prolific. And, you know, people who designed, you know, uh, the things that are on our desks at work or the things that are on our kitchen counters at home. And, uh, you know, there are people who, who made whole careers and who have these incredible bodies of work that span decades and decades and decades. So uh, that's what this is. This is a, a short list of uh, 1,000 design patents that I thought were the most interesting and important from uh, 750,000 have been issued since the year 1900. 
Very well. As I received this book in the mail before the podcast, I was showing some of my colleagues, other engineers, and we're flipping through. And you, like you said, you, you see anything from rubber ducks to a roller blades, a phone, a toaster, a chair, all these different design patents. It's a pretty thick book. Think of it like a, a, bit, a thick encyclopedia. And I, I want to understand um, who is the audience for this book? Well, I, th- I think the audience is, you know, anybody who's interested in design, you can be seriously interested in design or sort of passively interested in design. If you're seriously interested in design, I think you'll sort of pick this up and suddenly maybe realize that uh, you've been surrounded your whole life by things that are really works of design, but you've never really thought of them that way. You know, so like a pair of scissors, you know, or uh, your uh, computer keyboard, or I mean, you know, uh, recent Apple products, I think people sort of think of as, as works of design, but sort of more obscure things, uh, kind of, uh, I think a lot of people, you know, it may be sort of a revelation to realize that, oh, there's actually somebody designed this thing. Um, and if you're somebody who's just sort of passively interested in design, uh, I think it might have sort of the same uh, impact, I hope, you know. And so, uh, you know, I hope people sort of pick this up, this book, and, you know, can open to almost any random page and find something that they recognize. It's a very familiar object. Uh, and then, you know, look up to the top of the page and, you know, see the date that this thing was designed and the name of the designer. And uh, very often the, the commissioning manufacturer uh, is also listed. And, you know, kind of like uh, it's sort of suddenly all these things you realize are kind of connected to each other in an interesting way. Talk to us a little bit more about the connection in an interesting way. What are some of the, some of the take-home points of the book that you've written? Uh, well, I mean, for me, the, the, the connections are, are almost implied more than specifically highlighted um, in, uh, in looking at design patents. Um, if you really get into the nitty-gritty of it and, um, you know, say now there are uh, databases online, Google Patents, and others where you can go on and search by a designer. So, say you uh, stumble upon some uh, object that's always kind of you know, been familiar to you, or that you've admired, or that's interesting. It could be like uh, something as simple as a tape dispenser, and you suddenly now are armed with the name of the designer of said tape dispenser. You can then go to the database and punch in that name, and suddenly see, in some cases everything else that this designer has designed. And, you know, so it could be uh, everything from radios to toys to, um, you know, sometimes even buildings come up, you know, industrial designers, uh, you know, the lines blurred a bit with architecture. Um, And then from those typologies, uh, you know, across the breadth of any given typology, uh, there are all these other designers who have dabbled in that same typology or been commissioned by someone to design something of, uh, you know, like I said, could be a pair of scissors. Um, and so there are these kind of like lineal uh, lines of inquiry that, that you can do. And it kind of relates all these different objects to one another in what I think is a very interesting way. I mean, things that you never really considered as being related, you know, across spans of uh, could be a, a gap of typology, you know, totally disparate, types of objects, uh, or two objects of the same typology that, that were made decades apart from one another, 
um, could be the work of the same designer. You know, they might look completely different, you know, if they were made 40 years apart, but, um, you know, there's, there are these kind of like interesting relationships. That was, that's sort of the main kind of, uh, one of the main revelations of the project for, for me getting into it. I see. I guess I'm somewhat of a novice when it comes to design, because as I was reading through, I was failing to make the, the connections and the relationships. So I was hoping that with the podcast, we could help some of our listeners who may be thinking about buying the book, what some of those relationships may be so that as they're reading the book and flipping through the patents, they can start to see them as they're flipping through. Yeah, the, the book is arranged chronologically um, because I wanted to kind of, uh, you know, array all the different patents that are included in um, sort of like a straight line. So you could kind of see how the way their style, the various different styles evolved, kind of transcended all the different typologies. Um, there was kind of, there are two sort of ways to, to do a project like this, um, which is to group everything typologically um, or to do it chronologically. And we kind of yielded to the temptation of doing uh, a typological um, organization of things uh, by in the front of the book, pulling out 10 different case studies where you could kind of see like sort of the, how cell phones uh, evolved through time. And it's kind of neat to see like, you know, every 10 years or so, a different cell phone, well, not for cell phone, every couple of years, uh, a different cell phone design kind of, you know, kind of see how, how that evolved. But, uh, you know, for me, it was important to uh, kind of stress and underscore how um, the stylistic evolution involved transcended different typologies. So as you flip through the book, um, you, uh, you might notice that um, there's a kind of aesthetic that uh, is shared between objects of, of all different kinds. Um, and uh, that aesthetic uh, is kind of a reflection of what uh, the designers whose work is featured in the book had uh, available to them in the way of manufacturing techniques and materials. Um, and materials, the material that, that was uh, available to a designer, say, in 1930 versus 1950 versus 1970, um, was itself kind of a reflection of the manufacturing techniques that were available. And so these things are continuously changing. Um, and so you go from the early part of the 20th century where uh, objects of all different kinds have kind of, you'll very often see like classical motifs, the same kinds of uh, design details that you'd see in classically inspired architecture um, of the period. And suddenly in about 1930, this changes dramatically. Um, and so all those old kind of fussy details of classically inspired design as applied to, you know, be it a, a toaster or whatever else, um, kind of yield to this very kind of pared down, streamlined aesthetic. Um, and also at the same time, you get kind of uh, Art Deco uh, is influencing the way things look. Um, Art Deco yields to sort of streamlining in the late 1930s. Then after World War II, things kind of take on a, a different uh, aesthetic. And um, so there's, you know, um, this is sort of influenced by, say, the ability to make something by stamping it out of a single piece of metal versus having to uh, in years before, assemble it from different pieces of metal that each individually had to be stamped, or the availability of uh, plastics, early plastics like Bakelite or Catalan, um, and then later plastics, uh, more modern kinds of plastics versus uh, uh, having had to make things out of wood um, in decade, earlier decades in the 20th century. Um, and so these are the kinds of undercurrents that, you know, steered and shaped literally 
um, how uh, objects of all different kinds looked and how this, uh, like I said, this kind of style um, transcends all the different typologies as it evolves through time. Um, so uh, I'm hoping that some, you know, you could kind of in theory flip through the book um, and just sort of see, you know, um, yeah, like, uh, you know, even if, uh, like, say you took your glasses off, you could sort of see like how uh, things go from being sort of like one shape to like sort of more rounded shapes to then being more sort of square shapes again to, you know, it, it kind of even on that basic of a level, um, you know, there's this, uh, this kind of continuum, this, this lineal trajectory that kind of, uh, you know, moves through time. Mm, I see. It says that you're an architectural designer. Uh, that's not a term that a lot of our listeners are familiar with, including myself. Could you explain what that is? An architectural designer is an architect who doesn't have his or her architecture license yet, but they may find themselves, as I do, doing very similar kinds of work to an architect. But for legal reasons, I can't call myself an architect until I have my license. Hopefully okay. soon. Yep. And uh, what's the process like of getting the license? How many years does that take? Uh, it differs from state to state and country to country. Um, in New York State, which is where I am, um, if you depends on what kind of uh, degree you have, uh, undergraduate or graduate degree, um, and then you need a certain amount of work experience, and then you can start taking your licensing exams, which uh, over the years that I've been procrastinating... <laughs> Uh, doing this. Um, the number of exams has changed. Uh, I think it's down to five exams now. It had been significantly more than that at one point. Anyway, this is something I've got to kind of get off my butt and do here soon. Um, I've fulfilled my uh, work experience by a uh, handy margin at this point, so no more excuses. I'm too busy writing books. That's the right ma mindset. Um, I think we all have things that we want to do and we sometimes procrastinate, but I think it's good that we're all honest with ourselves. So that's good. So a lot of our listeners are proficient with SOLIDWORKS and 3D CAD modeling. What if when they flip across your book or they listen to our podcast, they become inclined towards maybe helping an inventor do a design patent? Can a CAD uh, person that's proficient in SOLIDWORKS and CAD help an inventor create some drawings? Is that how it works? I think the short answer is yes. Definitely yes. Um, I approach this more as a design historian and kind of approach the exercise as a curatorial exercise. But, I mean, the world of patents is one of the things that, like, has really impressed me about the world of patents is how uh, in-depth it is and how... Uh, how many people uh, have devoted their entire careers just to patents, either as uh, patent agents who are there for an inventor to approach, call up the patent agent, say, I have this idea, can you help me kind of like, you know, apply for and get a patent for it? Then the patent agents work with um, drafts pe people who actually like do the drawings, um, who is like a whole separate discipline, and then their patent attorneys. Um, legions of patent attorneys and the whole world of patent law, which, you know, th there are the subtleties of the nuance, the difference between um, design patents and utility patents that come into play here. And some people specialize in one or the other, or, you know, maybe you're able to kind of do a bit of both. But then you've got all the career professionals in the patent office, um, you know, and it gets into 
the uh, reviewers who are reviewing applications whose job it is to kind of then look at these drawings uh, and in the case of utility patents, read the often very extensive accompanying text and kind of make sure that this is in fact something that's not overlapping with something that's already been patented. And they have to kind of go through and do these side-by-side -side comparisons to, uh, to kind of make sure that this is a, in fact a new design because a lot of applications will get rejected if it turns out it's not something new. Um, one patent agent I talked with told me, I said, do you have any patents of your own? Um, and he said, you know, I've applied for three and all been rejected. <laughs> like, this is a guy whose job it is, and he's quite successful at getting other people's patents, uh, you know, approved. But uh, sort of a kind of uh, ironic twist there. Um, and I, I can't help to say, uh, just my first thought that came in my mind is, we're going to keep this person anonymous, but he must yeah. not be that good if you can't no, get your own. Great. Idea. <laughs> right? he really, he really, no, it's, it, that's the irony. Uh, you know, is the guy a, is a sharpshooter, a total ace at like getting, you know, patents for other people. But when it comes to his own patents, <laughs> they got rejected. You know, that's sort of a, thought it was a funny irony. But uh, and I think he sort of has a sense of humor about it too. But um, but yeah, then within the patent office, there are the people whose job it is just to kind of analyze the statistics. And it, you know, it's an insane amount of statistics uh, that you know. Um, patents kind of, uh, kind of uh, can be analyzed for. Uh, I did a little bit of statistical analysis of my own and looking at them, um, you know, but if you really have access to the full breadth of data, I mean, you know, the, the sort of statistical inquiry, inquiries that you could do, you know, becomes a whole rabbit hole of its own. Uh, you know, I was interested in looking at, you know, how many patents were issued to applicants from other countries. And then that's broken down by which other country, um, you know, and so it's interesting to see, for instance, how over the past 20 years or so, uh, the number of patents issued to applicants from China has gone from like, you know, 50 a year to, I think it, it broke 20,000 issued last year to, to applicants from China. You know, this is a really kind of staggering trend, you know, it, it's at the moment is, you know, on a, on a graph, it's almost like a, a vertical line. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues. And then, you know, through the years, there have been applicants from different countries who, you know, have had peaks and then, you know, the numbers have kind of plateaued and leveled off. You know, it, it's a sort of interesting uh, indicator of globalization, you know, uh, as a phenomenon too. So there's, there's lots of interesting things. And that's kind of getting into patents, uh, you know, in a, in a, in, from an angle that is completely different than the angle that uh, intrigued, first intrigued me about them. But it's uh, also by way of saying just how uh, kind of rich the field, it, you know, like how, how actually very interesting it can, it can get. All right, real quick, I just want to take a short break and share with our listeners that teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we can help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on their devices. So back to the show here with Thomas. And I wanted to ask you, what's something that you think I should ask you that I haven't asked you yet? Uh, oh, gosh. Boy, usually I have <laughs> many questions thrown at me. Um, but that's uh, one of them. <laughs> I can think of the kinds of questions that other people have asked me. What's uh, something that you may want to tell a lot of people that's important that you haven't had a chance to? Uh, 
Oh, gosh. Okay, that is a good question. Let me see if I can come up with a good answer for you here. Um, something I've wanted to tell a lot of people that haven't, uh, haven't uh, had a, a chance to. Well, I have had a chance a little bit to. Okay, it still counts. About, yeah, uh, you know, one of the, the kind of, uh, for me, um, things that I was happiest about with this project, both, you know, for my own like edification, but also because I think it's like a, a contribution to like, you know, uh, the study of design history at large is uh, how many uh, prolific designers, I kind of like alluded to this a little bit earlier, but how many prolific designers uh, I discovered in the course of doing this project who, you know, uh, I've never heard of these people before. And, you know, I'm somebody who's kind of like been interested in design history for a long time, you know, and these people were, you know, not just obscure, but, you know, I don't know, like, I'm not going to say nobody's ever heard these names, but, you know, there are certain people out there for whom these are familiar names, but, you know, it's, it's not a very big circle. Um, and so, you know, I was able to kind of go in and, and, you know, kind of like flip on the stadium lights and suddenly see, like the entire bodies of work of these industrial designers who, uh, you know, are as prolific as the ones you've heard of. Like a lot of people have heard of like Raymond Lowy, a lot of people have heard of Henry Dreyfus, you know, in more recent years, you know, uh, Johnny Ive and Apple and uh, uh, Philippe Stark and, you know, other kind of prominent names. But like for every one of those prominent names that, you know, a listener may have heard of, you know, there are dozens of people who are like just as prolific and have created the things that, you know, are there in the backdrop of our everyday lives, you know, who, whose names have just been totally lost, you know? And so it's just, uh, to me, like, I'm, I'm sort of proud to have kind of, you know, sort of like spotlighted some of these, you know, you know, sort of forgotten figures, um, a little bit. And, you know, there's some designers who, you know, like, uh, they went up out of the thousand, uh, patents that are in the book, I'm able to have like, you know, a handful by, you know, uh, this person or that person who turns out to be, you know, uh, like, uh, pretty important, uh, actually, I think when it comes to the, the history, design history. Um, but then I hope that, you know, people will kind of like take certain, I, I hope this book will be like, you know, the book that launches like a thousand rabbit hole dives, <laughs> you know, of people sort of like saying, huh, oh, that's interesting. This person designed, you know, uh, I don't know, my, uh, you know, my mom's typewriter or this, you know, person designed this, you know, chair that I saw in a museum. Like, I wonder what else they designed and like, okay, then like take that and like do your own search and kind of like see, you know, what I saw, which is, you know, everything else that, that kind of comes up in a search. Although the caveat there is that Google patents, which is currently really the easiest way to do that, um, is just hugely buggy right now so you can like punch in somebody's name at google patents and like get different results depending on which internet browser you're using you know certain things like you know that you a search result you get one day you might not get the next day it's that i don't know what's going on with it um but in any case eventually they'll figure that out and then you can take an obscure name like everett worthington and you know discover that this is a guy i've never heard of who had he not died of a heart attack in 1938 uh you know uh, he had been up until that point, like one of the the busiest hustlers in the whole industrial design uh, uh, sphere uh, in its early years in the 1930s, had he lived past World War II, he might have been, you know, one of the most uh, familiar household names in design uh, of anyone. And he had all these accounts with like Coca-Cola 
and like Toastmaster, you know, like these kind of like uh, big, big businesses. Um, and, you know, his career being cut short, like a lot of his accounts wound up going over to Raymond Lowy. And then Lowy's the one whose name we know now. Nobody's ever heard of Everett Worthington, you know, but you can kind of do that search and then suddenly see like all these things that he designed. I, I just think it's fascinating. Right on. So you, when you wrote the book, you say we quite often. Did you have a co-author co or a team? I didn't. No, I kind of, I'm using the, the royal we a little bit and, you know, including my editor, uh, Virginia McLeod at Fiden, who, you know, was really a, a collaborator in this project as well. Okay. And how many books have you launched? This is my third book. Not counting like a kind of self-published book in high school, uh, but all three books uh, have a couple of things in common. The last one was a, a book called New York Neon, which was a look at neon storefront signs from before what I call like the Helvetica watershed moment uh, of about 1970 that are found throughout the five boroughs of New York City, uh, a kind of rapidly disappearing Uh, species uh, here in the city. And uh, the one before that was a book called Hudson Valley Ruins, which I co-authored with Rob Yassensack. And that looks at uh, historic buildings in the Hudson River Valley of New York State between New York and Albany that have in common that they are threatened by neglect. So they're all kind of uh, studies in design history a bit. And they're all kind of looking at, the, you know, one th thing that I think all three books have in common is a fascination with Uh, the passage of time and its impact on uh, the built environment and the evolution of design and the aesthetic of man-made things uh, and how things come and things go and we build things and then there's some sort of fundamental change and uh, suddenly things that we've built become abandoned and become endangered and become interesting in a way that they might not have been interesting before. Uh, neon signs through the history of neon, which is this fascinating kind of like roller coaster uh, of a history. Uh, you know, neon was, uh, you know, hugely admired as a symbol of modernity and then became really kind of derided as a, uh, you know, something that people thought of as really kind of uh, tawdry and sleazy and associated with, you know, grit and decay, uh, and then became admired and beloved again in a kind of like a nostalgic way, you know, in more recent decades. Uh, you know, so I, I, I sort of, and then when it comes to patents, like I said, you know, kind of having done this chronological arrangement of the things that are featured in the book, uh, I think it's, it's very interesting to me how the passage of what's really in the grand scheme of things, a very, very, very short blip, uh, in history, you know, you can go like, look at something that was made 10 years before something else and see this you know, incredible, dramatic difference. You think of like a, a car, you know, from 1930 versus a car from 1960. I mean, 30, what's 30 years in the, the history of the world is nothing. And yet, you know, how incredibly different uh, those two cars look from each other. Uh, you know, I, it's just, uh, that is something that seems to continue, continuously uh, interest me. So that's what the three books have in common, I think. Not that you asked me that. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> All right. So um, where I was getting at with the book question, I actually wanted to know 
What's the process like when uh, writing a book and publishing it? I'm sure our audience would be interested in knowing that. And it's not a subject that nobody else, I think, has addressed in this podcast so far. Well, uh, I think, like, you know, it sounds probably a little cheesy, but perseverance would be the, if I was talking to somebody who's interested in writing a book, um, I would just say perseverance. Like, you know, just write it on a index card. They still make index cards and like pin it <laughs> above your desk and be prepared for, you know, uh, having to overcome discouragement in every imaginable and unimaginable form that it might come in. Uh, and be prepared to like hunker down and like be pursuing this, you know, objective for years. But uh, I mean, for me, um, the, the first book, you know, I had this idea, you know, I loved photographing these ruined and abandoned buildings in the Hudson River Valley back in the 90s. And, you know, I thought, this would make a great book. You know, these things are like so photogenic and, you know, really it was just all about the aesthetic to me. Um, you know, but I kind of, uh, you know, I said, well, how am I going to like actually, you know, make this a book? Like, how are we going to, you know, sell this idea to somebody? Um, and there are books about writing book proposals. And so I got my hands on some of those books about book proposals and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, then said about crafting a book proposal, which is basically like writing a small book. Uh, you know, it, it uh, like a, you kind of do an outline, like a table of contents and, you know, you, uh, pitch your idea and then you maybe have another section that, you know, kind of gives a little mock-up of what the book might actually look like. Like, you know, if it's, uh, going to be, it may or may not be graphic, uh, graphics intensive, or it may be really text uh, heavy, you know, but you do sort of like some sample pages basically, um, you know, and then you have a section with, okay, well, who's the, in, the target audience of this? Like, who's actually going to buy this? Like, have I thought about that? Um, you know, and how are you going to sort of sell this to a, a skeptical uh, editor at a publisher? Um, and then you look at, you know, related titles for us. So you want to, you know, just like with patents, uh, you want to make sure you're not doing something that somebody else has done before, and so you kind of have to like summarize all these things in a nice, neat little sort of like small book uh, of its own and then start shopping that around to publishers. You got to find, you know, sort of like shortlist uh, which publishers have published books of this nature before. You know, where are the publishers who seem to have demonstrated an interest in this particular genre, whatever it is, I'm kind of trying to, to get published here. And then sometimes you have to do the homework to kind of like get the editor's names, you know, that, that may or may not be easy to find. Um, you might have to get sort of creative in, in kind of like tracking those people down. Um, and then more and more often I've found uh, through the years, publishers, you know, will have, you, know, you go to the website of almost any publisher and they'll have usually submission guidelines to tell you exactly, you know, what format they want a book proposal to come in. Uh, but very often they'll have like, just don't send us anything. But, you know, you sort of have to know how to be like, well, I'm going to send this to you anyway, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, you know, sort of like do it uh, gently. Um, you know, I've even encountered some publishers in recent years that like uh, you have to send them like a hundred bucks or something or they won't even look at your project. And I, I think that actually was enough to discourage me from submitting to those publishers. But, uh, you know, I did think about just sending them something anyway without the hundred bucks and saying, if you're interested in this, take it out of my 
commission. You know, like uh, if you're not interested, the, you know, the hundred bucks isn't going to make the difference of whether you publish this or not. You know, if you're interested in this idea, you're, you're not going to care about whether I send you a check for a hundred bucks. You know, it's a bigger, it's more at stake than a hundred bucks to you uh, as a publisher. So anyway, you know, sometimes you kind of have to uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, get creative in, uh, you know, sort of looking at whatever the challenges might be the myriad challenges. Anyway, I, uh, I hope I didn't discourage people. Uh, like I said, perseverance, uh, it, it does sound like a lot of work, but you know, and it's, you got to look at it as unless, well, depending on how much free time you have, uh, you know, it's probably going to be like, you know, at least a year process to kind of develop an idea for a book and then pitch it and then hopefully get an editor. I mean, you know, uh, I kind of, I've started out looking at it as like, uh, you know, it's going to be several years, before I get this thing, you know, off the ground and two of the three books I've been lucky and it, it, you know, was quicker than that. But, uh, the first book was, you know, eh, first book's always going to be the hardest. Uh, but, uh, the first book was, was years, was really years, you know, I was about to give up, but, uh, you know, then along came someone interested. So yeah, perseverance. Uh, there's one thing that I wondered sometimes, and I think I always discuss this with other friends and colleagues, and I never had a chance to ask an actual author. And this is not about your book in particular, just books in general. My question is, why are books so long? I mean, why can't we just get the idea across in 10 pages? Uh, well, some are pretty short. Um, behind me, I have some big books and some little books. My the, patented is a thousand page book. Um, well, you know, Kurt Vonnegut had like, uh, uh, 10 commandments for writers. I think I'm remembering this, right. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. One of those 10 commandments was don't waste your reader's time. Uh, patented is a very graphically, uh, intense book. So there's not a lot of text, uh, in patented. I mean, you could spend hours and as I've spent years looking at patents. Um, but, uh, you know, I think he was sort of more, uh, intending that uh, particular commandment for people who are thinking about writing something that was more text uh, intensive. But, you know, if you could, don't waste your, your reader's time. I mean, if you have an idea that you can convey in 10 pages, write in 10 pages. Maybe it's a magazine article and not a book, you know. But if you have an idea that's going to take 200 pages, well, you know, don't make it 500 pages, make it 200 pages. Um, you know, and like the editor's jobs are to you know, kind of look at a, uh, an idea. And if, uh, a writer gives them 500 pages to say, mm, you know, I think this can be done in 200 pages. <laughs> and, uh, but no, there's, uh, a value in being, uh, you know, succinct. And this is something that I have, I didn't come to writing books, knowing this, this is something that I have had to work at. And it's incredible how, few words you can actually get a, an idea across in uh, sometimes that, you know, maybe you thought it was going to take 500 words to articulate this and you could, you might be surprised to find you could do it in 100. So, uh, and there's a real value, you know, like you as a writer are like, you know, totally, you, you think it's the most interesting thing in the world, but uh, your reader might not think it's the most interesting thing in the world or, or might not have as much time to give it as you do. And, you know, so uh, like Kurt Vonnegut said, don't waste your reader's time. So one or two of my earlier editors is going to hear me say that maybe and be like, what? 
Rinaldi. <laughs> too bad, you, too bad you hadn't read that Vonnegut thing before you sent me that giant <laughs> pile of crap. I, I wanna, I'd like to ask another question that only an author can uh, can answer. These are very candid questions. I hope you're not offended. But um, so, like, from a the question is from a purely selfish standpoint, what do you get out of publishing a book? I would say multiple things. It's not that hard of a question to answer, I don't think. I'm, I'm not finding it hard. Uh, you know, like, it's certainly gratifying, you know, and this is, like, maybe the first thing that, that some people will think of. It, it, it's gratifying, you know, and I, I'm, like, thrilled to think, like, long after I'm dead, you know, there'll be a book with my name on its spine in the New York Public Library somewhere, you know. Lord knows what the future of libraries and books are, uh, you know, but, like, these ideas of mine, you know, will kind of, like, have a life that's longer than mine, and that's that's just gratifying. It's just plain gratifying, you know. But I think, um, you know, when I approach, like, I've written three books now. I hope to be able to uh, one day say I've written more than that. You know, it's not that many compared to a lot of authors. But uh, you know, um, uh, when I approach a project, you know, I do keep in mind, okay, is this something that has been done before? And if it has, you know, can I really do it better? And even if I can do it better, is that like a waste of paper? Am I wasting the reader's time? You know, and if the answer is, you know, yes, then Lord, there's plenty of other ideas out there, you know, uh, you know, um, yeah, I, I think, um, so what do you then get out of, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think you're sort of, uh, wasting your own time as an author if you're, uh, writing something that somebody else has already written and, and, you know, then, okay, I guess you get the gratification, but, uh, I mean, for me, the, the gratification in that instance would be, uh, quite a lot mitigated by, you know, the sort of lingering thought that I had, you know, just wasted paper, <laughs> like, you know, just done something that, uh, that somebody else had done before. So, uh, I mean, there are certain subjects that I find quite interesting and, you know, somebody's written the book, but then somebody else comes along and write a book and there's another book and there's another book and there's another book and you're, there's another book, <laughs> you know, and it's sort of like, really, we really need all these books on the same, the same subject. Um, uh, uh, but what do you get out of it? Uh, for patented, uh, you know, this began as, this is something that I found fascinating regardless of whether or not it was going to be a book regardless you know it, it's it's great to be able to share uh something that i think is really interesting with other people and hopefully maybe you know interest other people or like light up an interest in somebody else uh, that they didn't even know they had you know I, I think that's that's really great but uh you know for me you know i just got a lot out of uh, this rabbit hole of kind of looking at all these patents, you know, it, it's changed the way this particular book has changed the way I look at the world. I mean, almost any room I'm in at any given time, uh, you know, I'm sitting in my office today and I had to go make a phone call. So I went to like the room in the, in the office, you know, where you could like make a, a phone call without bothering all your coworkers. And I'm sitting in the room and it, looking around the room and I'm like, ah, that, you know, new computer, you know, and I think I've, found the design patent for that computer and you know i, I thinking to myself uh you know oh i like but i can't remember the names of the designers i gotta go look that up you know and i when i think of it and you know then i'm gonna like see what else they designed and you know that you start to i don't know just it's, it's sort of like uh made everything so much more interesting i walked into a, a best buy 
uh, a few months ago. And, you know, it's just kind of looking at all of these products, these vacuum cleaners and cameras and, you know, phones and computers. And, you know, like just, they were so much more interesting to me because of this project. And I'm going to plug my Instagram. I have my own Instagram, but then there's an Instagram for the book. And, uh, you know, it's, it's design patent daily is the handle all one word design patent daily. And I try, it's turns out to not be quite daily, but I pick something, usually something from the book, almost always it's something from the book. And, uh, I try to do like a little one paragraph blurb about that particular thing. Cause the, the book, I didn't really have the opportunity to tell you much about the things that are featured in the book. So in these Instagram posts, you know, I'm kind of, I can tell you a little bit more about what these things actually are. And the process of doing this, now this is no longer a book, this is an Instagram uh, account. (laughs) Um, But the process of doing this is just, uh, you know, hugely uh, informative. You know, I, I look forward to doing these posts, you know, just so, so much, you know, and I'll like, uh, I'd be like, okay, you know, what are the the couple of patents I might be able to do an Instagram post about today from the book? And uh, I'll look down this, you know, list of maybe six or eight things. And, you know, sometimes it's like, ooh, ooh, like I want to, let me take that one. And I'm going to like, now I'm going to take, you know, a little time and, and research this thing and, you know, really kind of then write a paragraph about this thing. And the the exercise of doing this, you know, is just... So, uh, I, I just loving doing it, you know, and I, I'm learning so much in the, in the course of doing it. So, uh, this, I'm giving you a very long answer to this question and I have more, <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to have to end soon, but, uh, New York neon, for instance, the last book I did, you know, uh, this started as photographs. You know, I wanted to take photographs of these neon storefront signs, particularly neon storefront signs in the five boroughs of New York city, because I saw that they were disappearing and I wanted to get the pictures before, you know, well, soon the pictures were going to be all that's left. And if I didn't take the pictures, it wouldn't even be that. And, you know, so it started just as photographs, but then I, you know, I wanted to write an introduction to the book to kind of put these things into context and explain the significance. And, you know, the introduction turned out to be half the book and the, you know, which much to my editor's, consternation <laughs> but uh it got boiled down from what it was going to be <laughs> thank god which everyone can be thankful for but uh you know in the course of writing that introduction i had to educate myself on well the the practical and sort of uh the history of neon on a practical level you know okay when was neon gas discovered and what are the tools and who are the people that made the signs uh, but then also the kind of cultural history I had to kind of get up to speed on, you know, because we have these, you know, neon is is a subject that, you know, people have like very strong kind of responses to it. And it, I was interested in sort of sussing out like, you know, okay, like what's has steered those reactions that people have to neon? You know, so I'm looking at neon as represented in song and neon as represented in literature and neon as represented in film. And so then I'm, I'm having to watch like, you know, hundreds of movies and I'm having to read like every book I can get my hands on. And, you know, not just like uh, histories, but, you know, books like On the Road, like I'd never read Jack Kerouac's On the Road and I picked it up and read it, you know, to be able to inform what I was going to write in my introduction. And I found these incredible quotes where Jack Kerouac is specifically writing about, you know, neon as uh, a way of developing and and kind of uh, um, illustrating uh, his scenes in, in that book. And then the hard boiled detective novels 
of a you know a couple years so a couple decades before Kerouac, like the Dashiell Hammett kinds of novels, and you know I'm, I'm reading those, and I'd never read those before, you know, and I'll sit down now and like watch Jeopardy, and I'll get like a lot of things right, and I'll think to myself, I never would have known that if I hadn't written that book, you know, I never would have like it, it's just it's uh, so. What is it? What do I get out of it? What does an author get out of writing a book? You know, it, it's uh, this would be different if it were a work of fiction versus nonfiction. But uh, you know, there are some of the things in a very, very long answer. <laughs> There's some of the things that that I've gotten out of it besides just you know uh, it being gratifying. But yeah. All right, that is all we have for this episode. Thank you everyone for joining, and until next time. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.